Well, good morning and welcome again. As we begin, I invite you to pray with me. Father, I ask that you send your spirit now in this place and drown us in it. Fill it to the rafters so that all we may know and hear and see may be you. And by your spirit, may your living word show us the face of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we ask this. Amen. Since the new year, we've been reading through the letter of Paul, an early missionary and the namesake of this church, to the church that he established in the Greek city of Philippi. And we've been looking about what it means for how we think about joy. You can catch any of the sermons that you missed on YouTube. Today we finish up the letter, and we're looking at what it means to find joy in the end. And there's an intentional double meaning there. Having joy now, because of the end that's coming, and God's promise that at the end, there will be joy. Here's the thing about the Christian life. Our faith teaches us that Christ died for our sins, was raised to eternal life, that he now calls us to join him in that life, which is union with God. We experience that in part right now, and we have faith that one day we will know it in full. This is the Christian message. Despite the grief and pain of this life, there's joy in the end. But the problem is you can know this in your head and still nearly everything in life, good and bad, will work to pull you away from that joy. And the conclusion to Paul's joyful letter to the Philippians in three neat sections calls us back to it. Each section poses an implicit question for us. So three sections, three questions. Verses 8 to 9, where's your focus? Are you focused on what leads to life or what leads to death? Verses 10 to 13, where's your contentment? In Christ or your circumstances? And verses 14 to 19, where's your treasure? Is it in heaven or on earth? We're going to work through each of these in turn and see how there's joy at the end. Joy now at the end that's coming and the road that leads in the end to joy. So first section, verses 8 to 9. Finally, beloved, whatever's true, honorable, just, pure, pleasing, commendable, if there's any excellence and if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep on doing the things that you've seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. So first, question, first section, first question, where's your focus? Are you focused on what leads to life or what leads to death? These two lines in verses 8 and 9 wrap up the section that's come before, the preceding section in the letter, which Bennett and Jenny preached through over the past couple weeks. And that portion of the letter begins with Paul encouraging the Philippians to be careful who they're following. In 3, 13 and 14, he says, I do one thing. I forget what's past and I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. And you should do the same, Paul says. That's your goal. Jesus came to lead us to God. Push on. So like imagine you have a friend and you're driving somewhere and you don't have GPS and they say, no problem, just follow me. Well, you've got to keep eyes on them because you don't know all the turns. So Paul says in 3.17, imitate me and everyone who follows the example of the people who shared Jesus with you in the first place, the people who are pushing on toward that heavenly call. Don't follow and imitate the people who are enemies of the cross of Christ. They're headed toward destruction. Their way of life leads only to death. The destination matters. 
So watch who you're following. And here in verses 4, 8, and 9, he wraps up by saying, look, keep your eyes on what's good. Because nobody's perfect. Nobody but Jesus is good enough in the end to copy. So whatever, whatever is true, honorable, just, etc., etc., think about those things, the good stuff. Focus on the good things you've learned from me, Paul says, and the God of peace will be with you. So where's our focus? Are you following the road of life or veering toward death? Who are you imitating in your life? Each of us has influences, good and bad, in our lives. They show up in how we act and live and talk. You, turns out, you rather look like whatever it is that you're focusing on. And there are people in this world who caper for our attention, and there are things in this world that compete for our eyes and our hearts, right? The 24-hour news cycle, advertisements, social media doom scrolling. There is just so much that is not true, honorable, just, pure. But the work of the Christian life is little by little to turn our attention, to pull our attention away from those things, to narrow our focus on Jesus. Instead of chasing the examples of dozens of other people, to follow him, to imitate him. And that fundamentally means knowing him as Lord and Savior and teacher. If you want to know him, that means a life grounded in the worship and prayer and study that are the foundation of our rhythm of life here at St. Paul's. And that yields a life of service and generosity and faithfulness. And this really matters because you're not just a follower, you are a leader. And I can say that without equivocation for every single person in this room. Whoever you are, someone else has their eyes fixed on your back and is watching how you live. And they're going to go where you go. Your family, your kids, your friends, your coworkers, maybe people you don't even know are watching you, are looking to you. So where are you leading them? Where's your focus? On that which leads to life or that which leads to death? Second section, verses 10 to 13. Paul opens this by rejoicing with the Philippian, that the Philippians have sent him assistance, but then he quickly qualifies it. I love this. It's a little funny. It's also profound. I appreciate your help, Paul says, but not because I needed it. Because I've learned the secret to being content with whatever I've got. I've known good times and bad. I've learned how to be content in plenty and poverty and satisfaction and hunger. And then he tells the secret. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Second section, second question, where's your contentment? Is it in Christ or your circumstances? In other letters that Paul sent to churches, he recounts some of the misfortunes that he's endured. Shipwreck, beating, imprisonment, mob violence, it's a really long list. And the way he's gotten through it, all he says, is Jesus. I can do all things through him, through, through him who strengthens me. Maybe you've got a mug with that printed on it. But I read this verse... And I think, like, but how? Like, what does that mean? That sounds nice. But how does Jesus get you through the rough patches? Because let's be honest, when most of us, what most of us want from Jesus when we're going through hard times is for Jesus to make the hard times stop. And that's fair. Jesus did miracles, right? He was raised from the dead. If you're going to believe in him, shoot for the moon. Ask in faith for what you need. But Paul doesn't say, I can do all things through him who gets me out of binds. So there's something more going on here. You know, our lives usually ride our circumstances like a boat rides a wave. Sometimes we're up, sometimes we're down, sometimes we're 
overturning, but what Paul's pointing to here is a different way of moving through life, where you're not floating with the whims of the tide, but you're anchored in Jesus. And what this looks like is you can get through the good and the bad, both through Jesus who strengthens you. Because good times are spiritually dangerous too, right? Like there's no atheists in foxholes, but nobody prays when they win the lottery. I had to wrestle with this while I was writing this sermon, much to my annoyance. Sunday's coming fast and church is busy and I'm under the gun and this happens and that happens and a stomach bug sweeps through our house and it's nothing catastrophic, it's not tragic, it's just hard. It is not what I wanted. It was one of those weeks, you know? And I'm thinking to myself, okay, preacher, preach thyself because I can go to my default, which is cranky and irritable, short-tempered and self-justifying. I know, you, Tyler, no, never. I know, I know. Or I can turn to Jesus and say, you're my anchor. This is hard, but you're so good to me. Show me what's good. The day is hard, Jesus. Use it to make my heart soft. None of this is the way I want it to be. Use it all to make me the way you want me to be. And you know what? This changed things in part because I knew I was going to have to tell you all about it, but for real, it works. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret, Paul says, and the secret is that any circumstance, good or bad, can make you more like Jesus. So good times, thank you, Jesus. You've given the gift. You're so good, Jesus. Keep me humble, Jesus. Use this goodness to make me more like you. Bad times, save me, Jesus. Strengthen me, Jesus. Let me praise you, Jesus. Shine through me, Jesus. Use the bad time to make me more like you. So where's your contentment? In your circumstance or in Christ? Third section, verses 15 to 20. Paul's picking up the thread he started back in verse 10. You Philippians helped me back when nobody else would, Paul says, not that I needed it on account of the secret and all. And what you need to know, he says, is that what you've given isn't just a gift to me, it's a pleasing sacrifice to God. Well, no. It's a profit that accumulates to your account. In other words, Paul's saying, by giving me gifts, you've made a deposit in your heavenly bank box. But don't worry, he says, my God will fully satisfy all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So third section, third question. Where's your treasure? Is it in heaven or on earth? There's a thread you see throughout the Bible. Let's call it the sacrificial economy. And what it amounts to is you get what you give. But to get it, you have to really give it like sacrifice it. So if you give people money and other people applaud you for it, you haven't really sacrificed, you've just traded your money for praise. That's the difference between buying and sacrificing. When you buy something, you trade one thing for another thing. When you sacrifice something, you get nothing back except what God gives you, which is why sacrifice requires faith. The Philippian support of Paul was a sacrifice pleasing to God, Paul says. They didn't get anything back from their gift, but God received their deposit and God would provide for them out of limitless riches. Whatever your sacrifice is, is deposited in heaven. I promised you that this would be a sermon about joy in the end. And I want to tell you a story about that. Many of you know I wasn't raised a Christian. And in my early 20s, I heard the voice of God and it changed my life. But not right away. I didn't know what that meant. I was living in San Francisco, this would have been 1999 or 2000, and I thought I'd visit some churches. I was spiritually searching and I wasn't even sure for what. Maybe that resonates with some of you. 
One Sunday, I wound up at a church called the City of Refuge. I don't remember how I found it or why I decided to go there. No idea. It was in a rough part of town, south of Market, and all I knew about churches was what I'd seen on TV. So I showed up in my suit and tie. And I rolled up to the address, and it's a warehouse with barred windows. So here I am, 22 years old, in my suit and tie, and I try the door, and it's open. And inside, it's real busy, people moving chairs around to prep for service, and not a soul in a suit and tie. Quite the opposite. What you need to know about this place was it was full of people who'd been turned away from suit and tie churches. So there were prostitutes who'd come in from the previous night's work, homeless people, transgender people, folks with serious mental illness, AIDS patients, addicts. That's why they called it the City of Refuge, because they wanted it to welcome everyone that everyone else couldn't handle. The church started eventually, and this was a church that described itself as Baptist, Pentecostal, Methodist, which I guess meant their service was the equivalent of those three services back-to-back because they hit the lunch hour and went straight into the afternoon without pausing for breath. And there was a lot of smiling and singing and dancing and preaching. There was a lot of joy in that room. Everyone was so kind. And a couple hours in, they start their time of testimony, which was basically an anything-goes announcements. So Jane's in the hospital, pray for her. Bill started a new AIDS treatment. Let's make a list of people who will take him meals. There's a new Bible study on Tuesday, that sort of thing, right? And after a while, this woman stands up right behind me and starts talking. She's probably in her 30s. She looked a lot older than that. The world had treated her really hard. I wouldn't be surprised if that church was the only people who'd ever treated her kind. You could just see the pain written all over her face. And she spoke plainly and without a trace of self-pity. She'd just been to the clinic, she said, and the doctors told her that she had three months. I'm sorry that I don't remember if it was AIDS or cancer or what, just the way she told it. Just simply matter of fact. And there was dead silence. And you could hear people start to cry. Sorry, I thought I got this out of my system in the first service. And then her voice grew stronger. She said that pretty soon she'd be too sick to come on Sundays, and she would miss everyone very much. She said she loved them. She said she thanked God for them in her prayers. And then she said, almost shouting, I don't know why I'm going through this. I don't want to die. I've been praying and praying for healing, and healing hasn't come. But you know what? I find no fault with God, she said. Praise the Lord, I find no fault at all. And she sat down, and everyone in the place stood up clapping and weeping and praising God. And I am ashamed to say that I never went back. I was too shell-shocked by the grace that was on display. I wasn't ready for it. It was too holy for me. I didn't know what to do with that kind of faith, how to talk about what I'd seen. But she blessed me with a testimony that morning that I have carried for 20 years and more, and now I am sharing it with you. You would never have looked at her if you passed her on the street. I will never know her name. I am certain she has been dead two decades. But I can tell you this, she had joy. With a terminal diagnosis, she had joy. Because she knew 
that the God who'd made her, that the Jesus who traded heaven for the cross for her, that the spirit who lived in her dying body had transformed death into a doorway so there was joy at the end for her. This is real. Like what we do here, what we talk about here, this life we have together, this is real. We're not playing pretend. It can change your life and it can change your death. So where's your focus? In the goodness of Jesus, Savior of sinners. Where's your contentment? The goodness of Jesus, Savior of sinners. Where's your treasure? The goodness of Jesus. Savior of sinners, there is joy in the end for you.